You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship and God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This, these words were uttered by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 16, and mark really the true essence of courage. Real courage is more than a private commitment to Jesus that nobody knows about, but it's a public declaration that I am with Jesus and I hold fast to his word no matter what the consequences. This is what real courage is. And in our culture today, this is getting more difficult. And yet this is the call of God upon our lives. And this is the message of really 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to the end of the chapter. We've been studying through 2 Timothy. You can turn with me in your Bibles there, 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, please slip your hand up. The I should be more than happy to get a copy of God's word into your, into your hands. And I encourage you to follow along. I want you to see that, that, that this is coming from the Word of God. Everything I say is coming from the Word of God as I study and unpack this for us. 2 Timothy chapter 1. But here's really the whole theme of the rest of the first chapter. is simply this. I am unashamed of Jesus Christ. Already I think I have your attention because the truth of the matter is we know we should be unashamed, but let's be honest. You leave here. It's easy to stand up for Jesus at church. You leave here. You go into the culture, and we find ourselves sitting down instead of standing up. And yet in light of all that we heard last week, in light of the, the, the power that God has given us, he's given us not a, not a spirit of fear, but one of courage and love and self-control. Uh, this is our reality as believers. We stand unashamed. So let me read to you 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to the end, that I'm just going to pray and unpack this for you. This is Paul to Timothy, reminding our timid little friend who's a pastor to, to not be afraid, but to be unashamed. Be unashamed, Timothy. Be unashamed for Jesus Christ. It's a good reminder we all need today in the day and age we live in, in 2018, in Niagara, Ontario, in a culture that is moving farther from God. Look what it says in verse 8. Therefore, in other words, in light of all that we learned last week, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. I didn't make this theme up. This is the theme of the text. Nor of me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know who, whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day which has been entrusted, that which has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 
Verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me among those who are phygelous and homogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of one Sephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched me for Search for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord today for your heart and my heart. Let me pray. Will you pray with me as I bow? Will you bow in your hearts and ask that God would give us the courage to hear and to respond appropriately to the word of God this morning. Father, we thank you for the amazing reality of your son, Jesus. God, we thank you that Jesus isn't just a historical figure. He is real and he is alive and he's continually changing lives today. Thank you, God, that we are counted as those who are the most blessed in the universe because we've seen and tasted of the goodness of Jesus and responded by faith to his sacrifice on the cross and thus have a relationship with you and thus have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to enable us to Know you, God, to enable us to understand the scriptures and to enable us to even live out that which you've called us to. Father, we thank you for this book of 2 Timothy, which is so important and so relevant in today's day and age, in my life and our lives. And God, we pray this morning you keep us from just being dormant sitters and hearers, but God, help the word that goes into our minds, penetrate our hearts, and move us to action. God, may you call us, as you've called us, may you allow all of us to be unashamed for Jesus Christ and the gospel, not just this coming day, not just this coming week, but for a lifetime, Lord, until we meet you, putting all of our hope in you alone. Open up our spiritual ears and eyes to see and respond today, God. May you do in us what only you can do. Would you move us and motivate us to be passionate pursuers of Jesus Christ. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Pretty self-explanatory text today, so we're just going to get right to it. Um, Here's what I want you to write in your notes. If you're taking notes this morning, I encourage you to take notes. There's a lot to unpack in this, and I'm not going to hit every word, every verse, uh, but there's some things I'm just going to have to, like, not fly over, but a little less attention than others, so uh, buckle up. Here we go. Number one. To be unashamed of Jesus means this, I will proudly identify with Jesus Christ. To be unashamed of Jesus means I will, be, I will proudly identify with Jesus Christ. You see this throughout the whole text. This is really the theme of this section of Scripture. I know some of you are already being challenged, even as you watch the video this morning. and I can just even feel some of you slinking back in your seats as the truth of God's word and what God has called us to is being displayed to you. can feel some of you shrinking back in your seats and be like, oh my goodness, this is harsh, this is in your face. It's not harsh, this is truth. And I can feel others of you sitting up and sitting up straight and being, yes, yes, zealous for the things of the Lord. This is what God has called us to. It says three times in this text, unashamed, unashamed, unashamed. Verse eight, verse 12, verse 16, do not, command of God, that's a little minor suggestion. Hey, it might be good if you listen up. This is a command, do not be ashamed. See what he's says here, this is again, Paul to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor about me as a prisoner. Remember from last week, Paul's in jail, and so this isn't like this little glib exhortation from this this little pastor guy who stands up on the stage all boldly and goes and hides out in his house, never comes out and never follows through with practicing what he preaches. This is Paul. Why is he in jail? For his faith, for being unashamed. And so Paul's like, hey guys, Timothy, little Timothy, I know you're timid. I know it's a scary world out there, but if there's ever a time to not cower 
for Jesus, but stand in courage. It's now. Do not be ashamed. Dictionary definition of unashamed is this. Expressed or acting openly and without guilt or embarrassment. Not shy about the one that we love, about the one who saved us. It's easy to not be shy in church. Look around, we all share the same convictions, the same passions, yet you walk out of these doors and it's pretty easy to shrink back into yourself and never utter the name Jesus again until you come back to church next Sunday or you hang with your little small group of fellow believers Yet this whole call to be unashamed means that, that when we step out into the public square, we will hold fast to, we will contend for the name Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. What's a testimony about Jesus? Remember Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Philippians 2, here's a testimony about Jesus. He is actually the Son of God. Not just some good dude that lived a few years ago that has some good moral lessons to teach us. He's actually the son of God and, and left heaven and came to earth. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. That one day God would exalt him and make him the name that is above every name. That one day every knee is going to bow to the name of Jesus. Honestly, let's be honest. That is a message that sounds crazy to the unbelieving world, doesn't it? That's why Paul says it's sort of a message of foolishness for those that don't believe. And yet for us who do believe, it's the power of our salvation. And so we stand unashamed of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be unashamed of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. No such thing as a closet Christian or a covert Christian or an undercover Christian. To be a Christian means that I publicly identify with Jesus Christ. You know, the first time Christian comes up in the New Testament is Acts chapter 11, verse 26. The disciples were here first called Christians. Why? Because their behavior, their activity, and their speech were like Christ. Truly Christian literally means belonging to the party of Christ. I am in Christ and I come from Christ. It's like I'm an Ontarian. It means I belong in Ontario. I come from Ontario. I'm a native of Ontario. Or I'm a Canadian. Tells you where you come from, what you kind of stand for and where you're organized in the world. We are Christians. We're followers of the way, as it says in Acts 9, verse 2. The reality of the scriptures teach us that we're either with Christ, all in, 100%, no looking around, no turning back, no slinking under the seat when someone mentions his name. We're either with Christ or we're not at all. Even already I read this first sentence of this text and I'm not just a little bit challenged, I'm really challenged in my faith. You? Unashamed, we identify with a lot of things in this world, don't we? So I were to ask you, like, define yourself to me. I am blank. What would you say? First thing off your lips. Hey, tell me about yourself. Who are you? I am a. First thing we generally think of is I am, again, a Canadian, or I'm from Ontario, or I'm a husband, or I'm a wife, or I'm a father or mother, or I'm a child. Men generally start with I am a banker. 
I am a pastor. Maybe it's your abilities you define yourself by. I am a musician or I'm an artist. You know, first thing off every Christian's mouth should be, tell me about yourself, who are you? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's a little awkward, pastor. People might look at me funny. They might not want to be my friend if I do that. I'm just starting a new school year and what are people going to think on Brock campus or Niagara College campus if first thing I say is I'm a Christian? I'm just... My workplace, if I was really overt about my faith, it might cause me a little bit of stress. So what's our tendency as Christians in North America in 2018? We go undercover. We whisper, I'm a Christian, if I'm asked. But we never boldly proclaim that we're Christians. I think this is one of the big struggles of our church today. Why is a church not thriving in North America? Why are more churches closing than opening? Why is it that the church seems lame and people aren't attracted to it? I think it's because we're so shy about our faith. And in essence, we've become ashamed of Jesus Christ. We worry more about what the world thinks than what Jesus thinks. And if you think that's not a big deal, it is a big deal. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter 8, 38. Jesus says being ashamed really tells whether you're with Christ or not. Whoever is ashamed of me in this sinful, adulterous generation, it says here, this is Jesus speaking, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Uh Uh-oh. Jesus. Comes back riding on his horse. but I know you, but you're ashamed of me your whole life. Why would I now scoop you up and take you to eternal glory? It's amazing to me because we live in the most, in the least persecuted part of the world when it comes to our faith, and yet somehow we've become the most ashamed. Reading the story this week about a, a guy named Stephen Krieger, and he went with Open, Door, Open Doors Ministries visiting persecuted Christians in the Middle East. He really went to the heartland of the violent anti-Christian extremism. And one of the things he came back with is he was amazed at how overt Christians were with their faith. Everywhere he saw, you know, like short distance from ISIS, everywhere he saw was, was crosses dangling from uh, rearview mirrors and uh, bumper stickers and, and even uh, crosses on houses. One of the most amazing things he saw on his trip to the Middle East, you know, only 14 kilometers away from where the ISIS was kind of main station was, where they wouldn't even think twice about burning people alive. He went by a house with a mirror of Jesus painted on it on the outside and the inside. Awesome. And yet that's just not for people overseas. That's for us. That's for us. I could preach the whole sermon on this, but I'm not going to. Let me ask you this before I move on to point number two. It's a hard thing with preaching through text. I could preach like literally verse by verse. Let me ask you this. Are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? Do you stand unashamed with Paul for the testimony of our Lord and Savior? Are you the type of person that talks about Jesus here, you leave, and you don't mention him again? Are you the person that has to drop their napkin at the restaurant in order to say a quick prayer, Jesus, please bless my food and bless it to my bodies in Jesus' name? Oh, amen. Are you unashamed just to stop and thank the Lord for the meal that who's provided? He's provided for you. 
Are you the one in the workplace or school that, that when the jokes about Jesus come or the jokes get crude, you, you sit back in silence and really disown the one who saved you? The conversation goes to what's right and what's wrong. Are you the one that's going to stand with Jesus? Or are you the one that's going to keep your mouth closed in awkward silence? Every time I find myself shrinking back, shrinking back, because that's my human tendency too, we want people to like us, right? Every time I find myself shrinking back, I remember those times where, you know, you have friends in high school, and they're all your friends, and the cooler kids come along, and they leave you standing there, and you're like, well, what about me? What about me? That ever happened to you? I think about those times that it did happen to me, and I think, man, that's what I'm doing to Jesus right now. And it catapults me to want to stand unashamed for my king and make it known that I am his. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. People were running away from Paul in this time. All the friends he thought he had, they're out. But he says this, instead, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You can't skip over the second part of this verse either because this is such a foreign concept to us, I think, in North America, but it's such a true concept when you understand the biblical reality of being a Christian. Look what he says here. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're like, oh man, this is already going to be a risky sermon. You know, to stand unashamed for Jesus is risky. Life's too short. Let me tell you this. Uh, life's too short to not stand for Jesus Christ. Even in spite of the fact that when you do, you're going to be assured, this is what the pastor is teaching us, of what? What's the word? Starts with S, ends with offering. I know we're choking to get it out, right? Because we don't like it. <laughs> you say it, pastor. I don't like it. I don't like it either, but what's it say? Share in the... Half you get it. Share in the... Yeah. It means that there's going to be suffering, and yet look what it goes on to say. Share in the suffering for the gospel by what? By the power of God. Here's the second thing I want you to write in your notes. This is what it means to be unashamed. It means that with God's help, I will power over the suffering that comes my way. With God's help, I'm going to power over the suffering that comes my way. To choose Jesus, here's, let's be honest with you, to choose Jesus is actually means that it might be, will be a little bit harder in this life and not easier. But I thought Jesus was supposed to come to make my life perfect. That I could have a Hollywood script to all my dreams and all my hopes. Maybe what some guys on WDCX preach. But it's just not true. In fact, the Bible tells us over and over again to choose Jesus means you're going to choose suffering. It's the hard path in this life, but it's the right path. It's the narrow path we learn. It's the path least taken. But over that path has life and has Jesus over the, the other door, the door that everybody else seems to take, the door that we try to slam Jesus through is the wide path, the path that is easy, it's comfortable, you give into all your fleshly desires and everybody loves you, and yet that path over it has death and the enemy. And so to choose Jesus means we choose the narrow path. With the narrow path comes suffering. 
Don't believe me? It's throughout the whole New Testament. Just crack it open and start reading. You'll find that, that there's verses like 1 Peter 4.12. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Not like it's, it's, it's going to hurt a little bit. There's the, the fiery trial sounds pretty intense to me, doesn't it, you? Remember, God chose to choose words on purpose here. He's not choosing just... Words that are, don't mean it. These are your words he chose that are important. And do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Uh-oh, what's this? I didn't expect this. Joel Osteen told me it was going to be my best life now. <laughs> Reality is it is our best life now. Why? Because we have Jesus even in the midst of suffering. But not for all the reasons that maybe you hear on the radio. But it says this, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's what suffering is. It means to endure evil, misfortune, or trouble. And it's not talking about those unfortunate circumstances of life when that person in the parking lot wasn't looking and hit your nice new car and smashed your, park, smashed your taillight. Like, oh my goodness, what suffering I'm going through. That's not the suffering we're talking about here. How could God do this to me? It's not it. It's suffering for the name and the cause of Jesus Christ. It's suffering because you've identified with Jesus Christ and you've stood unashamed. And that's not a suffering you have to go looking for. I'm not telling you to go looking for it and stand on the street corner and try and bring suffering to your name. You don't have to go looking for it if you stand unashamed for Jesus. It's going to come and find you. But don't be surprised by it. Don't be dissuaded by it. Actually, anyone who's lived a godly life in Jesus Christ before us has endured some sort of suffering. In fact, who endured the most suffering? Jesus Christ endured the most suffering. He was called in Isaiah 53 the suffering servant. I've heard people try and do theological gymnastics around that passage. Oh, no, it was just, it was just him suffering on the cross. No, it wasn't. His whole life was marked by suffering, rejected and mocked and ridiculed. And you know all the things. You read, read the New Testament, right? Jesus was called the suffering servant. In fact, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he talked about his life, and his life wasn't in a uh, bed of roses. The Apostle Paul, ever since his conversion, remember, he had it pretty good before conversion. Everyone was they were loving him, and they were like, yeah, go get him, Paul. Like, we're with you, man. He's climbing the corporate ladder in the religious circles, right? And after he came to Christ, it got easier. Oh, wait, 100% easier, correct? All of a sudden, the hunter went to being the hunted. Second Corinthians 11, man, he endured a lot. Cast out by the people who didn't know him, cast out by his own, ridiculed a couple times, beaten, 40 minus 1. I don't know why the minus one is still a lot of lashes. And quite honestly, every believer that's followed has followed the same suit. Suffering. In our culture, we've been blessed. We don't suffer that much, but yet I don't want to minimize what we suffer because we do suffer. You stand for Christ. You stand for Christ. And you will, you will face some sort of marginalization or ostracization or People are going to characterize you as this and that and ridicule you and all kinds of things. Is that a reason to shrink back? No way. I, I, I love even reading now the, the, the websites about the persecuted church and, and you know, the 50 worst countries in the world is the 
50 top watch list of what people go through for their faith. It inspires me to, to walk through the little things I go through with greater confidence and greater assurance. Because, you know, if people around the world can go through suffering, surely I can go through a little bit of a snicker and a little bit of a, you're not invited to that party. Okay. In fact, you know, I think we think suffering's for another time, another day. Um, reading Open Doors USA stats, the organization I just quoted a minute ago with Steve Krieger. Listen, listen to this. Christians today are some of the most persecuted religious groups in the world. They are the most persecuted religious group in the world. Every month, you understand this? Every month, 255 Christians are killed. 104 are abducted. 180 women are raped, harassed, or forced into marriage. 66 churches attacked. 160 churches deta- Christians detained without trial and imprisoned. According to the research, 215 million Christians experience high levels of persecution in the countries on the world watch list, the 50 most difficult countries to be a believer. This represents 1 in 12 Christians worldwide. And this is just the stats that we know. I have to be honest, I think in North America we're big babies. I just think we're big babies. Or we don't get the fullness of the gospel, one or the other. One or the other. Because suffering's a part of it, it's part of the contract. I want Jesus and all the perks. Great. One of the perks is we get to suffer a little bit, which is a great thing because that means we identify with Jesus Christ. Even mentioning the word suffering, there's all these responses that come up. We want to run the other way and try and find out. We've got to get ways around this. It's got to be something just the pastor thinks and not what the Bible says. And five ways we respond to suffering. I'm thinking about this. Five ways we respond to suffering. Only one biblical way to walk through suffering. Here's what we do. I think common tendencies. Number one, we dread it. We lay awake at night worrying more about suffering than getting our eyes on Jesus Christ. We can work ourselves into a frenzy. Oh, no, I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to suffer. Yet there's no point dreading it. It's part of our reality that God promises to get us through. Here's another thing we do as, as Christians in North America. We, we deny it. Nah. Suffering's not for real. God says I should be loved by everyone, and the way to reach the world is to be embraced by the world. Why does it say in John 15, verse 18 to 20, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you, and it's going to happen because a servant is not greater than his master. No point denying it. It's just true. So we dread it. We deny it. So then we try and can't deny it. So we try and dodge it. We try and find a happy median between standing for Jesus and not making ripples in the world. Trying to stand for Jesus, not making ripples in the world is like going into the going to a hockey game in Montreal with a Leaf jersey on, people are just going to notice. And they'll say all kinds of mean things about you in a language you do not understand. (laughs) But it's the same thing. And so we try and dodge it, but let's be honest, James 4.4 stands out in this one. Friendship with the world means enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself, get this, an enemy of God. So we realize there's no point dreading it. It's common. We can't deny it. So we, no point dodging it. So then we just figure, well, I'm just going to deal with it. I'm going to white knuckle it through it. And I'm just going to hold on and grip my teeth and take one for Jesus. And that's not what the Bible says we're supposed to do either, does it? Look what, look what the Bible says we're supposed to do. We're supposed to, we're supposed to dominate through suffering. Expect it. Embrace it. 
By what? By your strength? By all that you can muster up? No, 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 not at all, because if it's about your strength, you're not going to muster it. By the power of God. By the power of God. And so, and so we know suffering's coming, so as believers, here's what, here's what Paul's telling Timothy. Timothy, don't, don't dread it. Don't dodge it. Don't deny it. Don't just white-knuckle it through. Here's the reality. Get your eyes on God again. Remember your salvation and allow God's Spirit to power you through the suffering. Just like Jesus did, just like Paul did, just like Christians around the world are doing, just like every other believer who went before you. This is actually the path of blessing. This is the path where you experience God in ways that you could never begin to imagine experiencing God. This is actually the path of joy. Because as Paul says in Philippians 3, the greatest, the greatest thing we have as believers is to identify with Jesus. Even in suffering, it shows that we're his and he's ours. This is actually the path of abundant life, so contrary to the world, but so alive in God. Here's what Piper says, the way of the cross is the way of suffering. Christians are called to die, not kill, in order to show the world how they are loved by Jesus Christ. How do we show the world that we love Christ? He's the most satisfying to us when we're willing to do anything for him. unashamed, suffering. This is what Paul is saying. Timothy, Timothy, just honor Jesus. Just love Jesus. Forget about this world thing. Get your eyes fixed on a greater reality of heaven. If you're like me, you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is a tough call. It is a tough call. Is it worth it? Absolutely it's worth it. How could we ever do this? I'm glad you're thinking that question because it comes next in the text. How do we ever begin to counter our natural intuition to run away from hardship and run away from suffering and step back and, and be loved by everyone? How do we do this? We remember this. We remember that the gospel is our greatest treasure above everything else. It's the rest of the text. Really, the gospel is our greatest treasure above everything else. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as a prisoner, but share in suffering. This is an invitation, brothers and sisters. Come and see the power of God alive in you. You're going to see it most clearly when you go through suffering. Knowing this, that God saved us. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Here's, here's what Paul basically saying is like, Timothy, just be unashamed. Even though suffering is coming, remember this. Remember this one point and, and then make this the focus of your life. Treasure the gospel above everything else because in the end, that's the only thing that matters. Your reputation doesn't matter. All the worldly pleasure don't, pleasures don't matter. In the end, what matters? That we have Jesus. 
Really, verses 9 to 11 are the gospel message. It's why Paul is willing to say that that I'm going to suffer. I'm not going to pack it in. I'm not going to go out and make a name for myself and try and make some money. Remember, Peter or Paul was an intelligent man, and he he could have had a whole other world going on. But why did he stick in? Because of the gospel. The gospel is about Christ and his salvation in my life. And once I see the true reality of Jesus and his salvation, how could I ever abandon him? How could I ever walk away from the one that loves me and saves me. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. It just lays it out for us. We hear gospel a lot these days, and I've even asked people all the time, they say it so often, what's gospel mean? You know, people sometimes, I don't know. May that not be anyone in our church. Here's what the gospel is. From 2 Timothy, here's what the gospel is, that, that, that Jesus saved me. Look at this, the gospel, the power of God. Jesus saved me. Here's what the power is. Remember that Jesus saved me. What does that mean? It means that we were all dead in our sins and trespasses as we learned earlier this morning in communion. We were dead, completely morally wicked, walking away from God in rebellion, but God in his mercy sent Jesus to come and grab us and reach reach for us and pull us back. He saved us. He pulled us out of the miry pit that was closing in over us like quicksand called sin and saved us and put our feet on solid ground. He's done that with every believer that calls themselves Christians. He saved us. He's called us. See, that's next to He called us to a holy calling. I love this. So many people think salvation is about me finding God, and I'm so smart, I came to the realization that I needed God, and I found him. Actually, the gospel message in the New Testament is not that we ever found God. We were so lost, we didn't even know we were lost. God found us. He sent the search party of one to find us. And he called us by name. See, he's called us. Yeah, there's the... the, Universal, there's the call for God so loved the world, but yet there's the, 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 the personal call. Hey, Daryl, you don't know you're lost, but look up into the darkness and see the light. So what he did with Paul when he was running away on the road to Damascus. He was, he was on his way to hammer Christians. And, and who, who showed up? Did, did Paul go looking for God? Who came looking for Paul? Jesus did. Did you go looking for God only because God was knocking on your heart saying, hey, there's something greater out there. You're a sinner. You can't work your way out of this one. He called us and he called us to a holy calling to be set apart, to be completely different than the world. That's really what the word holy means. It's like this. Remember in public school when you're in the recess and everyone's picking teams for the recess, Red Rover, Red Rover, we call whoever Rover. Remember that? And you're picking teams. Some of you remember it fondly, like, yeah, I remember. I was a first-round pick. Others of you are like, I hated that time. They never picked me first. Throughout of our salvation, it was like, God, who's going to be on his team? I pick you. And you're like, me? I thought I was going to go last. Uh-uh, I pick you. Isn't that awesome? God picked you. Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the earth, he already knew his team was going to be. He picked you. And your job was to respond to that and humble your heart and come. Why did he pick you? By his grace. See this? Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Because God had a plan for your life. It's greater than your little plan for your own life. Well, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a, maybe it's going to work out, maybe it's not. God has a greater plan that he called you by his grace according to his own purpose for your life. What does it mean by his grace? It means you have really nothing to offer God. 
Absolutely, I'm pretty good looking. I got some skills, some abilities. That's not it. It's not like the NFL draft where you know you get all your ratings and you get like a 10 out of 10 on every rating. Well, that's obvious why he picked you. you know, God, why did God pick you? By his grace. Because he wanted to show the world his glory through your life. Why did he pick Israel as his nation's little nation that was pretty weak? And, and why did he pick Israel? Why did he pick Israel? Why, why, why? Because he wanted to show his glory so that people could step back and be like, it's not about Israel, it's about the God of Israel. It's by his grace he chose us. You don't deserve God choosing you for sure. Oh, but I'm a pretty good person. Let's be honest. You know that in your heart that you're whole being is tainted by sin. It's called total depravity. The way you think, the way you see the world, the way you respond. You don't think you're tainted by sin? Try driving down the 406 in rush hour and everyone's trying to cram into that one lane and you'll find out quickly you're tainted by sin. <laughs> Try having a teenager who knows absolutely everything now. And every time you say yes, they say no. You'll find out you're tainted by sin. Work harder on that business deal only to find the person pull out from underneath, pull out from underneath your, your, out from underneath you, you'll find you're tainted by sin. Leave you alone to your own thoughts for long enough and you'll find those people you don't like, that hatred's, you know, find your thoughts going to all the places it shouldn't go. You're tainted by sin. It's not because you're good. It's because God's good that he chose you. By his grace, for his purposes, God's purpose for your life is not to make a lot of money and make a name for yourself. What's God's purpose for your life? To show, his, show the reality of who he is to the world around you greatest purpose, to love God and to make his name known is to see his power through your life for his purposes. He revealed himself to me. See what it says here? He gave us in Christ Jesus for the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Old Testament, they're like, when's the Messiah coming? When's the Messiah coming? Beginning of Matthew, he's coming. God dropped him from the sky into a manger. He's here. He revealed himself to the world and then since he's been opening eyes to see that this is truly the Son of God, the Messiah, all the prophecies of the Old Testament are coming true in Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself to us. He's taken the blinders off our eyes and helped us to see the truth of Jesus. This is the gospel. And Jesus came to abolish death. What does that mean? We know we're all gonna die. We know funerals are the worst part of this life. But for the believer, we die, but we don't really die. That's what it means. He abolished death. He, he took the penalty of our sin that when we die, he gave us eternal life. That when we die, it's just the beginning of our next life. The greater life, the life we're created for. Our best life is not now. It's when we're with Jesus forever. Jesus abolished death for believers. He abolished it. It's gone. Because of Jesus, one day we're going to be able to share in the celebration of the ages. They might be mourning at our funeral, but when they're mourning at our funeral, we're in heaven celebrating like we've never celebrated before. Even Baptists are going to dance in heaven, I'm convinced. <laughs> and every hand is going to be high for Jesus Christ. It's going to be greater than going to St. Patrick's Day in Ireland. It's going to be greater than going to the Mardi Gras in New Orleans or even, even New Year's Day in New York going to be eternity with our God, the celebration of the ages. He's abolished death. We don't have to worry about death. It's done. It's finished. It's over. But he didn't just abolish death. Look at this. He brought life. 
And immortality, it starts the moment we accept Jesus. He brought life and abundant life, it says in John 10, and, and light through the gospel. He opened our darkened eyes to see true light. He gives us abundant life that you can't have apart from Jesus Christ. So many people try to live life apart from Jesus Christ. You know, they find emptiness, death. I'm amazed at how many famous people are ending their own lives. But they got it all. Not all. They miss the one person that matters most, Jesus Christ. Is they don't even have life. They know they don't have life. They might have money and looks and the women and the men and everything else. They don't have life. The mansions, they don't have life. Jesus is the only one that brings life to our souls. Verse 11, so this is why Paul was appointed a preacher. So he's appointed to proclaim this, an apostle and a teacher, not just to proclaim the good news of salvation, but to teach it. And so we know the salvation, the gospel message is more than, hey, Jesus loves you and died for you. That is it in a nutshell, but there's more to it than that. He died to save you, and now he's given you all that you need to live an abundant life, which is a life of righteousness, not a life of sin, sanctification. So Paul's not just proclaiming this gospel, which I just proclaimed to you if you realize it or not, but to also teach you then how you can live by the power of God and experience the life of Christ in you that you live completely different than you used to live. The old nature is gone, the new nature is here. And, and to teach you that. This became Paul's passion in Paul's life, the same passion in life that we should be motivated by each day. How can we get to the place where we're willing to stand unashamed and even go through suffering for Jesus Christ? How do we get there? It's not by going like, I'm going to be unashamed today. Today's the day I'm going to be unashamed. Today's the day I'm going to, it's not it. Well, how is it? It's, it's to get your eyes on the glory of the gospel again and treasure Jesus and the gospel more than everything else. Everything else. Daily wake up and, oh God, I'm so glad that you are alive and I'm so glad that you saved me and made me alive in you. And so today, God, here's how I worship you. I live my life for you and for your glory alone. I live my life for the gospel. It's, it's the Matthew 13 principle. Remember that principle? Where the merchant finds the pearl of extraordinary value and sells everything he has and as long as I have the pearl I have it all uh, or the guy who's walking through a field and finds a treasure in the field and he quickly buries it and goes sells everything he has just to buy the field because if he has the field he has a treasure if he has a treasure he has it all that's us and Jesus if we have Jesus, we have it all. If we have salvation, we don't need anything or anybody else. Ultimately, we have everything our little hearts ever longed for. We have abundant life and light and no more death and who cares about anything else? And that's how we can stand unashamed. That's how we can go through suffering because we realize if we have Jesus, we have it all. Aren't our hearts little idol factories, aren't they? We have the gospel hearings. I'm talking about it. I, uh, I can't help but get a little bit fired up. And yet, are you getting fired up? Is the gospel still as meaningful for you today as it was the day you first met Jesus? If it should, be, Jesus is becoming more precious to us, not less. We increasingly see the reality that I don't care about people liking me anymore. I don't care about 
having all the things, I, I just want to live my life for Jesus. If I have Jesus, I have it all. Unashamed starts with grasping the gospel. If you've never truly grasped the gospel, if, even as I talk, you're like, oh, hum, I wish he'd stop talking about the gospel. I've heard it again. Maybe, maybe either you've never had the full reality of Jesus lighting up your heart or you've lost that fire that used to burn bright. That's where you're at today. Ask God, God, give me a greater view of Jesus, a greater view of the gospel. If you're here, this is firing you up. Let God stoke that fire today. Let God uh, kindle that fire in you again. That, that man, I just want to live my life for one purpose, the one who saved me. I want to live to glorify and honor him. Here's the last thing. Number four. How do I live unashamed? How do I sharing Christ's suffering and power through it's by putting 100% of my confidence in God. It also comes through putting 100% of my confidence in God. I love verse 12. You can circle this. You can highlight this. It's not wrong to do that in your Bibles. You can star it. I've done all those things. I've circled. I've highlighted. I put a little star here. This is the verse that really helps us fully grasp how this could ever be accomplished in our lives, how it was accomplished in Paul's life, how Timothy could ever live this out, knowing that this, knowing this. But I am not ashamed, he says again, for why? For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. This is the log on our spiritual fire. It's ultimately putting our confidence in God, not ourselves. Because I know whom I have believed. This is not a, a, a creedal statement of like, I believe in the Bible. and I, It's not it. It's, it's I've experienced a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and he's proven himself faithful to me through the word and through the Holy Spirit. I know whom I have convinced. I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able Let's be honest, I'm not able, you're not able, but he is able. The older I get, the more I realize that to be true. Remember when my son Zach was just a little guy, he used to think that his dad was able to do anything and, and he'd be like, you know, things would break, he'd be like, fix it dad, and I'd be like, there's no way to fix that shattered glass, there's not a, fix it dad, and... Now that he's like a teenager, he's like, Dad, you can't fix anything. <laughs> Give it here, Zach. I'll try. He's like, you can't do it. The opposite is true of us with God. The, the older we get, the more we've seen him fix absolutely everything he's needed to fix to get us to that point. And the older we get, don't we have less confidence? We have more confidence that God is able. Think over your own life. Oh, my goodness, is God able? Think over your own life. The times where you felt like running away and God grabs you like, uh-uh, not today. Whoosh. The times where you started digging that hole to bury yourself and he's got the shovel digging you out. The times where you thought there's no way, this wall is impossible to get over. Uh-uh, God somehow got you over that wall and around that obstacle. Who's able? Who's able to help you stand? God's able. And God's able to guard until that day all that's been entrusted to us. He's going to guard it 
protect it like a president has his entourage of guards. So we have God guarding us. Psalm 121, he goes before us and he oversees us until that day, until that day. The day that for unbelievers, it's that day. For believers, it's that day. All that he's entrusted to us. What's been entrusted to Paul? What's been entrusted to Timothy? What's been entrusted to me? The same things, our lives. He's entrusted with our lives. He's entrusted us with our gifts that he told us to fan into flame. He's entrusted us with the gospel, the greatest treasure we have. And to behold and to hold out for people, he's going to guard all of those things for us. And he's going to help us, look at this, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me, that you've heard from the word this morning in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's going to keep spurring on your faith and giving you love for Christ and those around you. Look at verse 14, by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us again, he's going to, he says, then for us though to do our part in guarding the good deposit entrusted to us. Also, you can just sit back and let God do it. Uh-uh. And then you guard as well. You vigilantly guard the good deposit. You guard your life. You steward your gift well. You hold out the gospel with all that you have, trusting that God is able. God is able. And look what it says at the end here. Basically, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. It's amazing when the going gets tough. The least likely get going. Among them are these two guys who have the goofy names and uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Didn't even cross my mind to name my kid one of those things. I'm pretty glad though because when the going got tough, they were probably leaders in the church that took off. Throughout history, you find out who's really for Christ when the going gets tough. When the going gets tough, churches shrink, but they become Pure. And they're left with the true remnant of the Lord. So don't be like those two guys. Don't vamoose when it gets tough. I pray every day that I'm not going to be like one of those two guys. I have the same temptations you do, man. I want ease. I want comfort. Pray for each other that we won't get lost. We'll come closer when things get tough. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of one Sephoris. He's one who didn't. He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Probably because he'd visit him in prison. And he searched for him earnestly and found me. They didn't know what dungeon Paul was in. This guy's like, I don't care who thinks. I'm finding my friend to encourage him in the Lord. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know of the service he rendered at Ephesus. It's a real reminder that in the end, our confidence isn't in ourselves, it's in God. Our ultimate confidence in our salvation is not in us, it's in God. I love the illustration of Roman handshake. You know, oftentimes, Nathan, stand up. Oftentimes we think of our salvation like this, that you know, we're going to reach out and grab Christ's hand and then let go. It's, let go. it's sort of hard to hold on, but it's more like a Roman handshake. It's more like this. This is how they used to shake hands and let go, let go, let go. No, let go, let go. <laughs> Stop pulling away, let go. I still got you, right? That's, that's salvation. It's like, it's, you let go all you want. God still got you. He's faithful, he's faithful. This is a picture. This is a picture of God is able, God is able, God is able, God is able. And so yes, we hold on to God with all that we have. We stand unashamed. We go through suffering. We treasure the gospel. But in the end, we know that it's all about the power of God, not ours. You know I love those stories of past believers who have stood firm. Let me uh, 
catapult you out of here with this one. It's a story from the uh, 1900s and the Boxer Revolution in China. And uh, the government there at that time was against, um, you know, they turned on um, government, government officials and religious officials and Christians and, uh, turn, sorry, turning against government officials from other countries and Christians and all those kind of things. And, and uh, one story out of there just really inspires me to, to, to stand unashamed as Paul is calling us to, as God is calling us to through Paul. And um, in that time, around 1899, 1900, the government of Chinese officials surrounded this missions uh, organization with a, about 100 people inside and uh, blocked all the eggs except for one. And so they uh, gathered everyone at the, the door and said, okay, here's the deal. If you trample over this cross that they put in the doorway, you can go free. You decide not to trample over the cross, you'll be immediately put to death. First seven students walked and, and uh, Ashamed, but they walked and they trampled on the cross as they went uh, out that door and ran to freedom. The eighth person, a young girl, got to the cross and she just couldn't do it. She couldn't do it. She knelt on her knees and prayed a prayer and looked to the heavens and thanked Jesus for his salvation. And then as the story goes, she daintily stepped around the cross and went to walk out the door where she was shot dead in the back of her head. Took a bullet to the back of her head. That one act of faith caused the other 92 people in that mission to follow suit and suffer the same death. Devastating on earth, but man, what a reward in heaven. How could she? How could they? Because they knew where the treasure was. They put 100% confidence in God and God alone. I pray we'd be the same. I don't know. I think it's coming in Canada. It's going to get harder, not easier. But I'm praying that even this text here, you dwell on these things, that you'd hold on to these things, that you would grab on to even verse 12. And you determine today in your heart, you determine today in your heart, no matter what the cost, I am going to pronounce this, I am unashamed of Jesus Christ. I am unashamed of Jesus Christ. That's the call. Response is up to you. Let me pray. God, may this be so for the glory of our King. Give us courage, Father. Give us strength. Give us perseverance. Help us fix our eyes on you, O Lord. May nothing become more a greater treasure to us than the full reality of who you are. Would our confidence, God, be continually in you and you alone? Oh, God, thank you that we can be convinced that we've believed in you and you are able to carry us until that day. Make this passage a reality, Father, by your Holy Spirit in every one of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.